Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church. Welcome. If you're visiting, thank you for being here with us, and we hope that you feel welcomed. And I just encourage you, even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, to hang out a little bit after the service. Don't run away like I would. Um, And just get to know some people. We have a great, warm, and welcoming community here. Um, People who would just be excited to meet you. Um, And so I invite you into that. You can also swing by the hospitality desk as well if you have more specific questions. But thank you for being here. We are in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments, and you chose the wrong one to come to. Um, because we're going to talk about family this morning. And so um, I just want to recognize, we'll talk about this more, but I want to recognize that that, even that reality can sometimes kind of send shockwaves through people, um, where just the idea of talking about your family will kind of conjure up experiences, memories, that you probably would honestly just rather not have. Um, And so hang in there. Because there is something better on the other side of that that hopefully we will arrive at together this morning. I know for me, that has been my own experience in wrestling with this text and wrestling with God in the midst of um, the difficulty of family. There's something that's actually beautiful down there. So um, I just wanted to acknowledge that. And also I wanted to remind you all of what the Ten Commandments are. They are not a list of rules and requirements that we must fulfill in order to have a relationship with God. How do I know that? Well, it says at the very beginning, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God, before he even starts talking about this, identifies himself as the God of this people. He says, I am yours. You are mine. There's a relationship there. And then he reminds them, I brought you out of darkness, out of evil, out of persecution, out of suffering. What did you do? You just came out. You came to me. And so the Ten Commandments are best understood as how God wants his redeemed people to live in the land that he is giving to them. For us, identifying Christ as our Savior is our redemption. And the Ten Commandments are a way, a guidepost for us to live a life in response to the redemption that we have in Christ. And so the first four that we've already covered were all about how to love God how God wants us to love him. He doesn't leave that up for us to imagine for ourselves. He doesn't hide that anywhere. He's very transparent with that. He says, here is how I want you to love me. I want you to worship me and me alone. I don't want you to exchange my glory for the glory of a graven thing or a carved image. I want you to honor and respect and love my name, to represent it well on this earth, and I want you to rest, friends. I want you to rest and remember the redemption that I gave you. And that last commandment, the one we covered last week, about honoring and remembering the Sabbath and remembering as we rest, we are redeemed people, and that the experience of resting in our redemption, it actually turns us into agents of that Sabbath rest. 
We experience it. We long for it. We know how God has redeemed us, and then we go out into the rest of the six days, agents of that rest, bringing that kind of rest to our neighbors, to our family members this morning. And so this is a turning point in the Ten Commandments. And you see these stacked next to each other. These are the only two positive commandments. What I mean is they're framed positively. They're not saying don't do something. They're saying actually do something. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And now honor your father and your mother. It's God's instructions for us to do something, not to not do something. And so they're connected They're connected. As we love God, as we experience his love and love him in return, he turns us into the world, into the relationships. He wants us to love our neighbor as well. And you can't love God without loving your neighbor. You can't do it. He wants you to do this. This is part of our worship of him, is our love of neighbor And so we're on the fifth commandment this morning, and I'll read it for us, um, and then we'll pray, dive in. So this is in Exodus, and I'm going to read those first two verses again in conjunction with 12, just to remind us that this is for those who have been redeemed. Um, This is not how we achieve our own salvation. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you as your children. You have made and created families because it speaks of the more fundamental relationship that we have with you, that you have created us to be your children. And so, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I ask that you would be here with us, that your spirit would comfort us, that your spirit would also convict us, but that we would not allow ourselves to be driven to despair, but be driven to your Son. And so, Lord, even as we reflect on him, the perfect son, the son who is perfectly honoring in everything that he did, God, we confess that he alone is our hope. He alone is the hope of families, and he is how you are redeeming our families. So, Lord, help us to see how that comes to us, how that intersects with our lives today. And give us hope, Lord as we labor for that work, as we long for that work to be completed. And help us to love you, Lord, as your children. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main idea here is that only the gospel redeems families. Only the gospel redeems families. And so to understand that idea, we have to talk about first the design of a family. What is a family? Where did it come from? Where did the idea of a family come from? Is it a social construct? Is it something that's actually woven into the fabric of creation? Is it necessary? Aren't we past it? 
And then second, we're going to talk about the danger of family. And this is where we're just going to acknowledge that all of us have been impacted, hurt in our families. We've also done some hurting in our families. And there's a great danger in family because of what it is. And then finally, we're going to actually look at, in specifics, how the gospel redeems families. How the gospel redeems families. So first, we're going to talk about the design of family, and this is going to be the easiest one. Because all you have to do is look around in this church where there's a bunch of little babies, and everybody smiles. And this is how it should be. I realize that not every baby comes with a bunch of smiles, but usually... In good situations, babies equal hope. They equal life. They equal fullness. They equal flourishing. It's a sign of blessing. And that's why we smile. We see them, and we see something that is innocent. We see something that moves our thoughts, our imaginations, into a better future. And that is true whether or not it's your own child or whether it's not you're just witnessing it. And this is why in most movies that introduce a child, there's kind of this anticipation, this excitement. I think about It's a Wonderful Life a lot when it comes to this. In the beginning stages of um, their marriage and as they're having babies, it's like this fulfillment of hope. And it's blessing and it's happiness. And yes, in that movie, they're setting you up to feel great pain. (laughs) They're going to leverage that against you. But in the beginning, we see something of the design of family in those moments. And even how they kind of um, stir our emotions. And that's what the family is. The family is a place where you see the strength of a loving Marriage being leveraged for the flourishing of a vulnerable child. Humans are really interesting because when babies first come out of the womb, they are completely helpless. And the period directly after that time is referred to by many as the fourth trimester. Because it's like, no, you came out too early. You are not ready yet for this world. You require so much care, so much nourishing because of your vulnerability. You're not quite ready to handle the world on your own. Other animals, like, they're out of the womb, and then they're standing up and walking around. It's like, oh, they're ready to go. Yeah, they still require a little bit of nourishing, but yeah, they can walk around, and, like, they're good. But... People are different. And it's because of this dynamic. It's because of how God wants humans to use their strength. They want humans to use their strength for the flourishing, the nourishment of the vulnerable. And so you see that reflected in the family unit. You also see in the family, you see God's provision for people to do what he wants them to do, which is be fruitful and multiply fill the earth, and form it. We can't do that by ourselves. We can't do that in isolation. We need community, and the foundation, the building block of communities are families. 
It's a man and a woman coming together and having children. That's how we get communities. That's how we are all here this morning. It's life. It's hope. But just like in A Wonderful Life, it doesn't stay that way. And this is why movies do this, is it doesn't take long from the initial joy and excitement of a baby to then enter in some type of storm, some type of turmoil into the picture, into the equation. And this is where we talk about the danger of family. The danger of family. And it corresponds to the design. Because families are made for the vulnerable, if you introduce imperfection, if you introduce any type of departure from the good into that system, into that unit, who's going to suffer? The vulnerable. And all of us have been vulnerable. All of us have been children. All of us have been in a family system that was broken. We have all felt this to varying degrees and in varying ways. We felt what happens when power is used not for the weak, but against the weak. We feel what happens when power is abused or what happens when power is neglected. When the role of mother and father is just dropped and the child is left uncertain, looking at a world that is threatening, that they're not ready for. We've all felt that. And I think more than at least any time that I can remember in the last 15 years, I think our culture is starting to really expose all of the different ways that this goes wrong. It's happened even in conversations. I don't know if it's just like a stage of development or something, but conversations that I've had with you all, conversations I've had with friends, other friends, we all are remembering ways that we've been impacted by our parents' failures, by our parents' shortcomings. We all have pain there. And then we start kind of like connecting dots. It's like, oh, that little point of pain in my life is connected to all this dysfunction that is still following me around. It gets worse <laughs> because we also see this phenomenon that's known in kind of like counseling language as recapitulation. It's a retelling of our story. It's a retelling of the ways that we have been hurt, a retelling of the ways that we have hurt others. And so what it feels like is we get stuck in this cycle of pain. And even, again, there's varying degrees to this, but even if it's a small amount, it is incredibly painful. Even in the best homes, this happens. And it happens then as those kids grow up and maybe they become parents themselves and they step into those roles. And now they're seeing, oh, I'm doing the same thing that my parents did. 
That's recapitulation. And it feels like this impossible cycle to break free from. When you add all of these cycles together in different families and you put them into a city, all of this dysfunction, all of this pain starts to collide and you get the world that we live in now. You see all of the pain happen because people have been hurt and those hurt people then go on to hurt people. Or they just live out of their hurt or they live out of the fear of their hurt. And so it's kind of like a governor on their potential. It throttles them back. And the good potential that was once there never seems to get realized. And societies suffer. And so there's two ways that we handle this. Two ways that we handle this as people. One is truth, and the other is honor. And in the Ten Commandments, we're talking about honor. But first, before we get to honor, we have to identify and acknowledge truth. Because in in a human mindset, it's truth or honor. I can either be honest and truthful about my family and the pain that I suffered, I'm talking the royal we, or I can be silent about that. And I can talk about the good things. I can honor my parents. I can can tell people how good they were. I can live a life that tries to bless them. But hidden beneath the honoring is the suppression of truth. And some cultures are really... Um, adept at silencing truth for the sake of honoring. You don't speak badly about your parents ever. You don't acknowledge wrongs that were done to you ever because it would bring dishonor on the family. But I think that for most of us, we are responding to that and we have kind of gone headlong into truth. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, but it can become a bad thing because truth, as we all know, can be weaponized. It can be spoken as a weapon to get even. It can be spoken as a tool of vengeance rather than justice. And this happens all the time in families, doesn't it? That's why you have shouting matches with your parents or your siblings or your children. It's why temperatures boil over because people's inner core has been violated to some degree. Their vulnerability has been tapped into and taken advantage of, and that's a truth they need to be heard. But maybe... We've let go of any idea of honoring. And this can happen. It can almost feel inauthentic to say anything good about your family, especially when you have suffered great pain. It can, it can, be, it can feel wrong 
It can feel like an attack against that truth to follow this commandment. And so this commandment, if you think about it for long enough, you're going to become very uncomfortable with it. You're going to feel like God is asking you to do something that you simply cannot do. Because to do it, it would feel to you like it would be to ignore the pain. It would be to ignore the suffering. It could be to ignore and silence the truth. I should have said this at the beginning. We're talking about families today because I think we have to. But in this commandment, this applies to all relationships of authority. And so I just want to throw that out there. And also, I want to talk about another side of this commandment before we get into how the gospel redeems it. I want to talk about the flip side, the thing that is assumed and implied throughout all of it. Because it'll help you navigate that tension that I was just talking about. And that is that in the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, there's kind of this assumption and it is that your father and your mother are honorable. It's operating in kind of this pure vacuum of the will of God coming down to the people. Where in a family, father and mother should be good. They're not going to be perfect in a fallen world, but they should be good. And so here is what we also need to hear is that this, the fifth commandment is for parents as well. It's for parents just as much as it's for children. Because God wants you to be a father who's easy to honor. He wants you to be, to be a mother that is easy, and it comes naturally to your children to honor and you do that by using your power for your child's flourishing. You do that by protecting, by loving. You do that by not sinning against your child. And so as you're thinking about how, how is it that I honor my parents or how is it that I can live a life that is honorable, I want you to first kind of be able to decouple this. Is I'm, we, God is not asking you to be silent about pain. He's not asking you to ignore it. He's not asking you to look away from it. It is first and foremost an offense against him. His heart is for children. And so when you sin against your child, that's a great evil in his sight. He's not asking you to ignore that. But here's what he is asking you to do. Use your energy. Use your mind. Use your imagination. Use your memory to find what is honorable in your parents. There's something there. And if you can't find that, that's okay but work on a process of getting to a place where you can because it's there. They gave you life at the very least, the most basic thing. And there's something that is 
within your ability to honor. But you can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it on your own. It's only in the gospel that you're going to actually be able to do that. That you're going to be free to find something to honor in your parents. Where you're going to be set free from the guilt of being a parent who is dishonorable at times. And so I want to turn to 1 Peter as we talk about how the gospel redeems families, because we have to spend some time here. We have to really start to kind of unwind and unpack this. Like, okay, we've dug ourselves a good hole. We've really dove into the danger of families. We've talked about, we know this intuitively, how they hurt us. How do we get out of here? And Peter is talking about servants, but this is really about, again, it's about authority. And family is the most basic unit of authority in God's design. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Okay. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Oof. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. You have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's a lot there. It's a beautiful passage. And at the very center of that passage, we see the perfect son. We see him whose life brought perfect honor to his perfect father. We see him in the land... But what do we see? His days weren't long in the land. He died in the land. The promise that is attached to this commandment was broken. What sense does that make? If we believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he lived the perfect, sinless life, that he honored his father and mother perfectly, then his days should have been long in the land. This is the word of God. It's a promise. So what gives? Is God a liar? Did he break his promise to his son? No, of course not. And it's in verse 24 that we see 
the reason that his days were not long in the land. It is because he bore our sins in his body. He bore our sins. He bore the sins of your parents, and he bore your sins. The sins of disobedient, disrespectful, rebellious children. He bore those sins in his body. They're our sins. So here's how the gospel starts to redeem families. The first way is repentance. The first way that we have the language, the logic, the resources of the gospel when we think about our families, when we think about all the ways that we have dishonored our parents, when we think about all the ways that we've hurt our children, when we think about all the ways that we're angry at our parents, through all of that, a wide open door of repentance. He bore your sins in his body. The call is to identify those. Yes, those are my sins. That's repentance. Jesus, you bore my sins. There's no savior if there's no sin. You don't know Jesus as your savior if you don't first know your sin. And so as you're feeling conviction, for me it came from both directions, parent and son, right? I have sinned in various ways here. He bore those, son, those sins. I can repent. I can turn. I can turn towards him. I can trust that when I trust in him, that my sin becomes his sin in that way. He didn't do it, but he takes it on. So repentance. Well, him bearing them, he doesn't just bear them in futility. He bears them for a purpose. And this is the second resource that we have in the gospel to redeem families, and it's forgiveness. When Jesus takes our sins upon himself, he ends them. His death is the death of those sins. He puts them into the ground. They're done. You have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. It is by his wounds that you have been healed, that your guilt has been washed away. You are forgiven. What is it that forgiven people do? Well, first they respond in love. They love their Lord. They love their Savior. But as we see in the parable of the unjust ruler, we also see that forgiven people forgive. And when you become aware of your sin against a perfect, holy God, and then you receive the free forgiveness that is found in the death and resurrection of his son, you want to give that away too. You want to forgive. And again, this is a calling. That's the language that Peter used. This is what you are called to. The implication to that is that this isn't like, oh, wave of the magic wand and, yep, forgiving everything. No. For us, we have to work this out. We respond to that calling. 
This comes through a process of wrestling through wounding, wrestling through bitterness, wrestling through resentment. But eventually, there's a softening. Eventually, for people who have been forgiven, forgiveness comes, and it washes, and it restores. And this happens in families. This can happen to you and your parents. This can happen to you and your children. This is the claim of the gospel. That reconciliation is possible and it's a work of God. And what happens when you get this kind of twofold repentance and forgiveness dynamic and it gets injected into a family, into the intimacy, into the closeness of a family unit, what happens is the cycle of recapitulation, the endless cycle of hurting people and hurting people and hurting people, that is interrupted. And you're pulled into something else. You're pulled into a progression, a storyline of redemption. And you see this happening in families. I promise you, you see it. And it's like a ripple effect. And God's transforming grace transforms families. What is it a sign of? It's a sign of the kingdom of God breaking into the kingdom of evil. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is the end of the Old Testament. Malachi pleading with the people, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is a picture of the kingdom. It's a picture where wounded people, people who have been hurt by this most fundamental, most intimate relationship, are reconciled. It's a picture where you get a group, a kingdom, a world of people that have been reconciled to each other by the coming of Jesus. And their hearts are realigned into God's good intention. And it's perfect. And it's better than perfect. Because we've seen the worst that this world has had to give. And it's been redeemed. And that in this world is an amazing thing. It's a thing that is worth waiting for. It's a thing that's worth laboring for. It's a thing that's worth hearing really hard truths for. And so for all of you who might be having hard conversations, and they will happen, (laughs) hard conversations with your parents or with your children one day, I want you to think about this, that truth can be very hard to hear initially. But with the gospel, it's not truth or honor, it's truth and honor. Because we have a place where that truth resides. And it's in Jesus. We can handle it. I want to read you this quote to help you with that. 
It says, when truth is spoken in anger or out of long periods of suffering and injustice, it is often raw, intense, and even traumatizing. It can be difficult to hear and easy to dismiss because of the anger. In context of injustice, however, it is important that such truths be spoken. Despite the harshness or bitterness of the words, they can represent crucial opportunities for fidelity, repentance, and love. So I want to speak to the parents. Because oftentimes your children don't know, won't know, how their words can hurt you. They think you're unhurtable. And they are truth tellers. (laughs) And so they're going to give you some truth. And it's going to hurt. But it's an opportunity It's an opportunity for that redemptive cycle to start working. It's an opportunity for you to hear, to confess to them, to repent, to be forgiven, to be washed, to be cleansed, for your children to then see a life that's been transformed by the gospel and know how to follow that life. And those days the days of being hurt by things that your children are saying, the days of being hurt by your parents, those days are numbered. There is a day that's coming, according to the prophet Malachi, where perfectly we will be reconciled to one another. Where we will live in a family that perfectly realizes the potential that God has made each of us with as we work that out together. And we only glimpse this now. And so now, our job, our responsibility, the people of God living as an embassy of the, of the kingdom of God in this world is we are to love one another as we do this. We can't do this alone. We can't do this in our own strength. We have to trust that even at times the unseen work of God is happening. That God is healing. That reconciliation is happening, and it's painstakingly slow. And guess what, guys? We need each other to do that. I get to feel this because I have the privilege of being a pastor of a church that prays for me. And I know that you guys are praying for me because it happens, and it's unexplainable. But there will be moments of breakthrough in my own family, moments where I can see that redemptive cycle happening. It's because you love me and you're praying for me. It's because you remind me in community of the truth that I believe, that this process is working, because it's too close to me to see. So, friends, we are brought into the family of God, And we are brought into that family for the purpose of helping each other pursue the life of the redeemed. To make this kingdom visible in this world. And yes, that happens as we honor our parents. As we show a world that has forgotten the purpose of family. That is seeing family increasingly as a limitation to human potential. We get to reimagine that 
And we get to experience how God redeems it through the gospel. So labor for that. Pray for it. Help each other. Help each other be good parents. Help each other be good children. Because you're going to have so many opportunities in the future to take tangible steps of loving your parents, of loving your children. How you relate to your parents now will help you, will form a bond of love as you help them die, as you walk beside them in love during their hardest days. How you love your children right now is teaching them how to do that for you. You're teaching them what love looks like. And so we need help. We need to help each other as we do that. And it's happening. And the call here is to remember you have the resources of the gospel at your disposal. Don't forget them. Don't try and operate in your own strength or in your own wisdom. Repentance, forgiveness, trusting the Lord. Let's pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you do not give us over to our own desires and the various ways that, um, that we have taken your good creation and distorted it. Lord, we also thank you that you interrupt the cycles of hurt that permeate this world. And Lord, we all here today who are trusting in you, we have been recipients of the most amazing grace shown to us by our good and perfectly Father. You've modeled perfectly what godly authority looks like. Lord, give us strength to cling to that, to try and imitate that. Give us your spirit to remind us, to give us strength, to help us take those steps of faith as sometimes they feel counterintuitive. I thank you for this church, for the, for the way that they love each other, for the ways that we get to experience and see hearts of parents turned towards their children and hearts of children turned and turning towards their parents. Lord, we thank you for that immense blessing. We ask that it would multiply, that we would see it more and more, that your work of redemption would permeate this church and the people within it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.